The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Last month, ABC, ABC aired an interview with rapper Travel Coleman. Am I really loud? Yes? Okay. Andrew, can you turn me down just a little bit? Because I'm going to get excited, and then I'll just get louder. So, um, I'm actually kind of hoping the mic goes out so I can start yelling. But Last month, ABC aired an interview with a rapper named Travell Coleman. And Travell Coleman was a rising voice in the hip-hop scene who had a bright future and seemed destined to stardom. Except... Travell had one big secret. In the fall of 1993, a month before his 19th birthday, Travell Coleman, using a gun, mugged a stranger in Harlem. Travell recalls he went up to the man and he said, give me your money. And the man was unresponsive. And then the man started running at him and went to grab the gun. And as they struggled, Travell shot three times this man. He remembers seeing the man's face as he winced and fell to the ground. As he left home the next morning, the police were canvassing the neighborhood and they stopped him and they said, do you know anything about the shooting that occurred yesterday? To which he responded, no. A week later, Coleman took the gun and threw it in the East River. He stayed quiet about it for four years, pouring himself into music. Five years later, his talent got caught. Uh, his talent got caught that caught the attention of Sean P. Diddy Combs, whatever his name is now. I'm not sure what it is. It always changes. He's one of the most famous hip hop artists, and he offered Coleman three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a record deal. So they started working together. And during this time, Coleman had a daughter with his girlfriend. That relationship ended. And so he got married to another woman and now had twin boys that were nine years old. And so here he was. He had family. He had fortune. But he also had this gigantic secret. And he says this. He says, the guilt had been eating him away. He said, it seemed like It just wasn't fair for me to be happy. I used to curb my happiness. Like, ha, wait a minute. I'm smiling too much. I'm laughing too much. Coleman remained haunted by his secret. He goes on to say, I thought about whether or not he had children. I couldn't believe that I could have this beautiful thing in my life, meaning his children, and have done something like that. He, the victim, could have been a father. And here I am trying to be a father. Burdened by what happened, Coleman's music career suffered, mostly because of the drugs that he had turned to. He said, I was just knee deep in trying to medicate myself and not feel and numb myself. And so I have a question for you today. And you're going to have to think hard and you're going to have to think honest. But is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Something that is weighing down your soul. A secret sin that that maybe you just don't want to go there, you don't want to deal with it, or a secret sin that you have somehow justified 
you somehow rationalized it, thinking that that would make everything better. But in reality, underneath it all, it is weighing down your soul. You see, no matter how much you try to bury your sin, no matter how much you try to justify your sin, no matter how much you try to medicate your sin, it eats away your soul. It haunts you. It taints every aspect of your life. A few months ago, I painted our outdoor table, and you have to use oil-based paint. And one of the secrets that we do when, we, when we're painting, uh, you usually have to put a second coat on the next day. And so we'll take the paintbrush, we'll wrap it in a plastic bag, we'll put it in the fridge so that it doesn't get hard, and then you don't have to wash it. Um, and so I took this oil-based paintbrush, put it in the fridge. The next day, my wife calls me and says, everything in the fridge tastes like paint. So we had to throw out everything in the fridge. That's what secret sin is like in our life. It taints everything in our life. And we may not see it, we may not taste it, we may not know it, but it taints everything in our life. And so is there a secret sin in your life, an unrepentant sin that is eating away your life? Jacob's ten sons had such a secret sin. Many of you are familiar with this story, but 20 years prior to today's passage that we're going to read, Joseph's brothers did something unthinkable. They sold their baby brother into slavery. Joseph disappears. He ends up being a cold case. They told their father, or at least convinced their father with a bloody garment that Joseph had been eaten by animals. And so they betrayed Joseph, and they kept this a secret for 20 years from their father. And you must imagine how it would have haunted them, the questions. The questions like, I wonder what it would be like if Joseph was here today. I wonder what his kids would look like. I wonder what Joseph's up to today. I wonder what Joseph is going through. The reality is those 20 years for Joseph were painful. They were horrible. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. He was wrongfully accused of rape and put into prison. He was forgotten in prison. He lost the the prime of his life, what people think is the prime of their life, from 17 years old to about 37 years old, was wasted in prison and in slavery. Probably the worst thing that Joseph endured was the betrayal of those that were to love him the most, his family. Some of you have endured that. And yet, after 20 years of suffering, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to consider the fact that the brothers suffered worse than Joseph. The brothers had to suffer with this monumental secret that they were carrying around their necks. Yes, being physically imprisoned is bad, but to be spiritually, emotionally, mentally imprisoned and weighed down by the guilt of your own conscience is even worse. We saw, if you remember in in Genesis 38, how Judah tried to medicate for this. He ran away from his family. He started going out and partying. He started sleeping around with prostitutes. It's, It's not too much of a stretch to imagine that all of the brothers medicated themselves in some way to somehow dole in the pain of the reality of their sin. And so, again, we want to ask today, for our guilt-ridden souls, is there any freedom? Is there any relief from our sin? And as we go to God asking that question, we need to go in prayer because we need help 
because these are areas that we don't want to touch. So let's pray. Lord God, would you help us open that buried secret in our hearts? The one that we have so desperately tucked away. Maybe that unrepentant sin on our life that we have justified, that we have deemed respectable sin because everybody else does it. God, pray that you would surface it this morning and that your grace would come upon it and give our souls freedom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chris taught to us last week from Genesis chapter 41. And we have seen that in the midst of Joseph's 20 years of imprisonment and in slavery, that God has been with Joseph the whole time, and God has been blessing Joseph. Last week we saw that Pharaoh had a dream, and that Joseph's ability to interpret dreams was made known to him. And so, so that Pharaoh brings Joseph up out of the prison, and has Joseph come and interpret his dream. Joseph interprets his dream correctly and tells him that there will be seven plentiful years of produce that are about to come, but it will be followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph goes on to give the Pharaoh advice on how to prepare for that famine. Pharaoh responds to Joseph's interpretation and advice by saying this. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? This is a non-believing Pharaoh saying this. He goes on to say, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. This is high praise from a king to a convicted rapist. This is what he says of Joseph. He says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. And so for seven years of plenty, Joseph gathers all of the grain from Egypt and puts it in the storehouses of Egypt. And then the seven years of famine hit, and they hit hard. And they don't just hit Egypt, they hit the whole region. And that's where we pick up today's story. We're going to actually start in verse 53 of Genesis 41, because it will give us the background for Genesis 42. I don't have the page number on me. It's in your bulletin uh, if you need it. Genesis 41, we'll start in verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And then this part's important. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God had many wonderful and glorious and providential reasons for bringing this famine. But one that we will see in Genesis chapter 42 as we dive into it is that God, by his grace, is using this famine to uncover the guilt that the brothers of Joseph have buried. The guilt that they have tucked away, the guilt that they have not talked about 
for 20 years. God starts to bring it to the surface, not to shame them, but to reconcile them. To reconcile them with Joseph, to reconcile themselves with their own conscience, and most of all, to reconcile them with God. And so as we dip into Genesis 42, you'll see God starting to go to work on the calloused, hard hearts of Joseph's brothers. And he starts, he starts his work by uncovering their guilt. And he starts by uncovering it with an uncomfortable conversation. Look at verse 1 with me. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Kind of reminds me of the three stooges, right? Like, why are you looking at one another? Why aren't you doing anything about this? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. This was a severe situation. They were facing the real possibility of starvation and death. And to Jacob's great dismay, the sons did nothing about it. And the question is, why didn't they do anything? They most likely knew that there was grain for sale in Egypt. Jacob would have been more homebound. He was older. The brothers would have been out in the community. They would have heard that there was grain for sale in Egypt. And yet they were so afraid to go that they, that they, were, going, they were willing to jeopardize their family's own safety because they didn't want to go to Egypt. My guess is the reason why they didn't go to Egypt the reason why they didn't take the initiative to go get food for their family was because Egypt was this forbidden name. You see, the brothers knew something that Jacob didn't know. The brothers knew that they had sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Egypt would have been a word that would have troubled them very easily. It's probably a word that they didn't mention because anytime Egypt would be mentioned, it would be a reminder of their guilt. Have you ever had that? Maybe a shameful circumstance from your past. Maybe a certain sin in your life. Maybe there's a certain house or a certain room or a certain location where, where if that place is mentioned or that thing is mentioned, this, this rush of shame comes back to you. This was the situation for the brothers. Egypt was a place that was a place of great shame for them. It made their buried secret come to the top. But their father, Jacob, was insistent. He goes on, verse 3. So the ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Again, Jacob is playing favoritism. He takes his favorite wife and makes her children his favorite children. Verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Not only were Jacob's brothers not able to hear this forbidden name, but now they were going to take this forbidden journey. We have this map up here, and you can see this is the journey of Joseph. And his brothers would have had to take the same journey to Egypt. The same journey that Joseph took, bound and dragged, heartbroken, was the same journey that they were going to have to take. And not only were they going to have to take that journey, they were going to have to go to the place where Joseph was. If you were in the brother situations, could you imagine? I mean, if I was in their situation, I would say, okay, I'm going to Egypt. What if? What if I see Joseph? What if I lock eyes with Joseph and he is in a demeaning 
situation. How embarrassing, how shameful will that be? What a reminder of my guilt. And so they're extremely uncomfortable. And so God starts to uncover their buried guilt with this uncomfortable conversation and this uncomfortable command from their father. He goes on to uncover their guilt with a reverse experience. You'll see what I mean here. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. You know, when the famine hit, as we've read several times already, people were coming from all over to visit Joseph. Coming from all over, it says, the world, that area, that region, to come and ask Joseph for grain, to ask him for food. Certainly there were people that had come from Canaan to ask him. Certainly it was on Joseph's mind, someday my own brothers might come and ask me for food. What will I do if such a situation happens? And so I think Joseph's response is a well-thought-out well-meditated response. Now, some could look at this. It says Joseph spoke to them roughly, and he was even a bit deceptive because he disguises his own identity. And so some might look at it and just say, listen, Joseph is vengeful. He is angry. He's toying with his brothers. And that could be true. But I think what would make his brothers even more fearful is if Joseph revealed his identity. If you actually look when Joseph does reveal his identity a few chapters later, Joseph says, it's me, it's Joseph. Is my father still alive? And then it says, they were so terrified they couldn't speak. And so if Joseph wanted to put terror into them, he could have just revealed his identity. They were already afraid of him because he was the second most powerful man in the world because he held the food that they needed to live. I think why Joseph was deceptive, why he spoke roughly to them was for a much different reason. Remember what Pharaoh said of Joseph. Pharaoh said, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then he says, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And so I think this was a wise plan of Joseph. I think Joseph spoke harshly to them because he knew that they had not changed. He knew that they still had hard hearts, that they were unrepentant about their sin. He could see it in their interaction with one another. Joseph knew that he could forgive them all that he wants. But until they had repented of their sin to God and to each other and to Joseph, until that happened, there would be no reconciliation. The Reformation Study Bible puts it like this. It says, Joseph was able to use the circumstances of the providential famine and his own authority to help reconcile his shattered family. By confronting his brothers with life and death issues, he awakened their conscience so that they would confess their guilt and fear to God. So I think Joseph spoke harshly to them that they might understand what they have done to him. And we'll see the situation gets reversed. But I think Joseph also hides his identity to protect himself. If you remember, the last time Joseph saw his brothers, they were trying to murder him. They were selling him into slavery. 
They were turning a deaf ear to his cries. And so there is no reason yet for Joseph to trust his brothers. He has chosen to to keep his identity revealed so that he can test them, so he can see, are these people that I can entrust my heart to once again? Joseph goes on and he actually tests his brothers three times. And by testing, he's not only seen if they're, they, they, they are worthy of entrusting his heart to, he's also being an instrument of God to refine them. And we see he tests them. Genesis 42 is one test. Genesis 43 is the second test. And Genesis 44 is the third test that Joseph is putting before them that he might see if once again he could entrust his heart to them. Sometimes in marriage counseling, marriages are so fractured, so broken, so unhealthy. Sometimes the pain is so deep and the trust is so minimal that we actually have to take the couple and we have to separate them. We actually have to put them under different roofs. This has happened several times since I have started working in pastoral ministry. And we separate them so that they can work on their own junk. (laughs) We separate them so they can work on their own hearts. So that they can get to a place of true repentance. A place where they can confess their sin to one another. A a place where they can actually live under the same roof together and not kill one another. And then there is that beautiful day. That beautiful day after they have started conversation again. After they have gone on some dates. In which we bring them back together under the same roof. After there has been the hard work of purging out the selfishness and the sin in their lives, and working by God's grace, reconciliation. Whenever we have done those situations, the purpose has never been to divorce this couple. The purpose has always been repentance and reconciliation. And I think that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. He is working to that place where there will be repentance and reconciliation, and the brothers once again would be able to entrust their hearts to him, and he to them. Matthew 18, 21, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, an infinite number. It is true we are called to forgive those who have sinned against us. But sometimes it is foolish to entrust our hearts to them. Sometimes the pain is so deep, so severe, that trust has to be regained. This is what Joseph is doing, and it is wise. It is smart. But you can see he's also working towards that. He's not standing on the sidelines. Verse 9, let's continue. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, the dreams that they would bow down before him, which they did now in verse 6. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness or vulnerableness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men, says the men who lied to their father for 20 years. (laughs) Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, 
It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless you unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Could you imagine? I mean, here you are, you are You are part of the chosen family of God. You are supposed to worship the Lord God. You go to Egypt. You're not doing a very good job of it, by the way. You're going to Egypt. You come across this man who's second to Pharaoh in this pagan land, and he says, I fear God. (laughs) Verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. The situation has been reversed. The shoe is now on the other foot. The hunter has become the hunted. The brothers are now walking a mile in Joseph's shoes. For 20 years, the brothers probably wondered, what's Joseph going through? And now they're starting to understand it experientially on a micro scale. Growing up, if you remember, they thought Joseph to be their enemy. Joseph was the one who gave a bad report of him back to their father. And so they they saw Joseph as their enemy, maybe even as a spy. And so here's Joseph accusing them of being spies in the land. Joseph begged for freedom, out of the distress of his soul. Now the brothers are begging Joseph for freedom out of the distress of their souls. They made Joseph fear for his own life. Now they are fearing for their life. Joseph was unjustly imprisoned for years, and now Joseph unjustly imprisons them for three days. God has reversed the situation to make them understand the depth of their action, the depth of their sin against Joseph, to understand what they have put Joseph through. You know, it's funny because God does this to me all the time. He's reversed the situation on me several times. I'll give you just a few instances. I remember when I was in high school, I had several coaches and I used to think, man, these coaches, they don't know what they're doing. Like, why would they play this person here and that person there? Why would they run this player or that player, whatever it might be? And I was really judgmental of them until I became a coach. <laughs> and then I realized, you know what? I have 10 to 12 guys who want to touch the ball every time. How do I run this team, right? I remember I used to make fun of my bosses. I thought they were so silly, so stupid, so dumb. And then I became a boss. I'm like, what does Chris and Jason think of me? I used to be really critical of pastors, I mean, they only work one day a week, right? And then I became a pastor. I used to laugh at how my older siblings would get so worked up around their kids and how they plan everything around nap time. And then I became a parent. (laughs) Do you see how God reverses the situations in our life to show us how self-centered we are, how self-righteous we are? 
It's what God is doing in the life of Joseph's brothers because he loves them. He cares for them. You know, it is God's grace that he reverses those situations. I'm so thankful that God reverses those situations. I pray that he would continue to do so to purge me of my self-centeredness, my self-sufficiency, my self-righteousness. And so we see God uncovers the brother's guilt with an uncomfortable conversation about Egypt with a reverse experience and having things that happened to Joseph now happen to them. And now we see that God, as part of his divine love and loving grace, he uncovers their guilt so that their guilt will uncover them. If you're looking in the bulletin, it says the last way God uncovers their guilt is through grace, and we're going to come back to that. But we see now that the guilt uncovers us. The guilt uncovers their brothers. Verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul. What a statement. We saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us, and we did not listen, this is why the distress has come upon us. Do you see God's hard labor at work? Do you see how their hard hearts are starting to soften? How they're starting to realize what they have done? They're starting to actually pay attention? Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, he starts pointing fingers, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now... There comes a reckoning for his blood. It is true Reuben did speak up, but Reuben did also keep the family secret for 20 years. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So Joseph hears all of this going on. Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. After Joseph hears his brothers starting to confess their sin, and he starts seeing Reuben start pointing fingers, there's this mixed emotion in Joseph, and he goes away and he weeps. And he goes away and he weeps because he sees the grace of God is starting to break through their hard hearts. He's seeing the grace of God is starting to make them confess that they have sinned against their brother. And yet, with the turmoil of the conversation with Reuben and everything else, he can see there is still a long way to go, that God's grace still has much work to do. And so he turns away, and he weeps. And he is excited about the start of this journey of redemption, but he knows that it will be a long journey. So God uncovers that buried guilt with an uncomfortable conversation, with a reverse experience, and then the guilt uncovers them. They start to confess their sin. And finally, we see God has more work to do on them. He needs to bring that secret into the open more fully. And so God uncovers their guilt with grace. Now, just to make sure we have a consistent definition of grace, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Riches, treasures, whatever it might be, getting something that you don't deserve, okay? Verse 25, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder, 
at the lodging place, they, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God, the first time, by the way, that they actually mentioned God, the brothers, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine to your household and go your way. We see here in verse 33, God's grace starting to be given to these brothers through Joseph. First off, if you notice, Joseph, when he first meets the brothers, he says, all of you stay here and send one home. But now he says, just keep one here and the other nine of you can go home. And so we see grace in that, but we also see grace in that Joseph doesn't send them back empty-handed. Joseph sends them back with food to feed their family. He sends back nine because they can carry more food home and take care of those that are hungry. It goes on. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Verse 33 again, sorry. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. You remember what grace is? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Joseph's first act of grace is sending nine back and only keeping one. His second act of grace is to give them grain to go back with. And his final act of grace is not only giving them grain, but giving back their money that they might have it. Now they mistake this. The brothers mistake this as a curse from God. Jacob even mistakes it for that. We look and we continue in verse 35. It says, And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. In other words, Simeon's going to die as soon as they find out that you took the money. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. They interpret this gift of grace as judgment upon them. And to be quite honest, it's understandable that they do because it, is, it, it does seem like something's kind of fishy here. But this is an act of grace on Joseph's behalf. We know this because later when they come back to the land, they come to Joseph's steward and they say to him, listen, this money was in our sack. We didn't know it was there. We don't know how it got there. And the steward responds this way. He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out from them. When God uncovers the depth of our guilt, when he uncovers how sinful we have been, when he uncovers that secret sin or that sin that we have been justified in saying, it's okay, it's not that big of a deal. When he uncovers that, God's grace is quite simply unbelievable. It is overwhelming. 
How many of you have seen that show, Extreme Home Makeovers? How many of you have seen that? Okay, quite a few. How many of you, if you can be honest, when at the end of the show they go, move that bus, and the bus moves, and they show the family, just start crying. How many of you cry along with them? All right, we got a few honest people. Good. The reason why that moment overwhelms us is because we see grace. Here's this family. Ty and the other crew come into this very broken situation, and they say, you know what? We're going to send you away on vacation, and we're going to build you this brand new house. But the thing is, God's grace towards you is even greater than that. You see, in the show, during the whole first 20 minutes, they tell you why this family deserves this, right? They tell you, okay, they adopted 15 kids or they saved 30 puppies or something like that, right? And so now we're going to build them this great big house. God's grace is quite different than that in that not only do you not deserve it, you actually deserve the opposite, Romans 5, 7 talks about this distinction. You can read along with me on the screen. It says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This is kind of the extreme home makeover thing, right? Like they're sacrificing. They're not dying, but they're making great sacrifices of time and effort and money for good people, right? For noble people, for people who do honorable things. But God's grace is different, and that's what it says in verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not deserving, not worthy, Christ died for us. Since there we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, not friends, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by the, his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. This is the point of Joseph's story, that the brothers would be reconciled to Joseph, that they would be reconciled to God. This is the point of our story that we would see that it's only by the grace and love of God that we are saved. Some of you are weighed down by your sin. You know the gospel in your head, but you have not believed it in your heart. You have not understood that the only reason God loves you is because God loves you. It's because of grace. And so God loves us with this unfathomable love. Let me end with this. In late 2010... 14 years after the shooting, Travell Coleman, then 37, couldn't bear it anymore. He went to the police and told an officer he had shot a man 16 years before. This is the amazing part. The police did nothing. <laughs> Travell Coleman recalls it. He says, I guess he, talking about the officer, just felt like it was so outlandish. So he was like, listen, that was a long time ago. Give me your number and I'll call you. Well, two weeks pass, and he gets no call. So Travell again goes back to the police department to confess his sin. He, said, he recalls it, and he says, I think I was just at the point where enough is enough. It never went away, me thinking about it, so it was like I had to do something about it. The police soon found out that everything he described matched a cold case, of a man named John Hinkle who had been shot on October 19th, 
1993 at the location that Coleman had designated. Suddenly he was charged with murder. And when he was asked if he had any second thoughts about it, he said no, he would do it again. After the case was made public, Sean Combs talked about it on a radio program in December 2010. And he says this, G-Dep, that was his rapper name, Ghetto Dependent. G-Dep is one of the nicest artists I ever worked with. But you could always feel like something was troubling his soul because he was really quiet. Jim Nelson, the editor-in-chief of GQ Magazine, served as the jury foreman. And he says this, he says, You have to concede that the man probably lived in a jail in his house in his head for 18 years. The jury found Coleman guilty of second-degree murder, and he was put in prison for 15 years to life. Coleman, who was then separated from his wife, his wife said this. She said, Travell is different. He's not on drugs. He feels freer. You can tell by listening to him. He sounds a lot better like the Travell I first met, caring, loving, trying to do what he can. The people who may not understand why Coleman turned himself in include some of the victim's relatives. But Coleman said it didn't matter because he was now at peace. He goes, I don't feel like I'm cheating life. A lot of burden is lifted. Could today be the start of your journey towards Egypt? Could today be the day where you dig up that hidden sin, the one that's tucked away in your soul, the one that you have been trying to ignore but has been poisoning everything in your life, that you could be bringing it to the top, whether you're a child and you have been lying to your parents about something or whether you're a spouse and you've been lying to your other spouse about a secret relationship, secret expenses, whatever it might be, could today be the day that that guilt is unburied, that you could be exposed to the freedom and love and rejoicing and reconciliation that God has intended for you and that your heart has longed for. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your table today, Let it be a reminder of the cost of our sin. That our sin was so horrible that Jesus had to die for it. And yet he did it joyfully because he knew that it would gain us. Lord God, I pray for anyone here who is ignoring sin in their life, that they would freely repent it this morning, God. And that those who are weighed down by their sin, who have dwelt on their sin, that they would know that this is meant to lead to rejoicing because it has led to reconciliation with you, God. Be with us as we partake of this supper. Remind us that it is an act of worship for the God who loved us, even in the midst of our secret sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.